Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. Korach, argument for the sake of heaven. The Karach Rebellion wasn't just the worst of the revolts from the wilderness years. It was also different in kind, because it was a direct assault on Moses and Aaron. Karach and his fellow rebels, in essence, accused Moses of nepotism, of failure, above all of being a fraud, of attributing to God decisions and laws that Moses had devised himself for his own ends. So grave was the attack that it became for the sages a paradigm of the worst kind of disagreement. Which is an argument? for the sake of heaven, they asked, the argument between Hillel and Shammai. What is an argument not for the sake of heaven? The argument of Korach and his company. Thus, Pirkei Avot Meiri, uh, from Catalonia in the uh, 13th century, explains this teaching in the following terms. The argument between Hillel and Shammai. In their debates, one of them would render a decision and the other would argue against it out of a desire to discover the truth, not out of cantankerousness or a wish to prevail over his fellow. An argument not for the sake of heaven was that of Kerach and his company, for they came to undermine Moses, our master, may he rest in peace, and his position out of envy and contentiousness and ambition for victory. The sages, in other words, were drawing a fundamental distinction between two kinds of conflict, argument for the sake of truth and argument for the sake of victory. The passage must be read this way because of the glaring discrepancy between what the rebels said and what they sought. What they said was, the people didn't need leaders, they were all holy, they'd all heard the word of God. Why do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? asked Karach. Yet from Moses' reply, it's clear that he had heard something altogether different behind their words. Moses also said to Karach, Now listen to you, Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He's brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too wasn't that they wanted a community without leaders, it's rather that they wanted to be the leaders. The rebels' rhetoric had nothing to do with the pursuit of truth, and everything to do with the pursuit of honour, status and power. They wanted not to learn, but to win. They sought not verity, but victory. We can trace the impact of this in terms of the sequence of events that followed. First, Moses proposed a simple test. Let the rebels bring an offering of incense the next day, and God would show whether they, he'd accepted or rejected their offering. This is a rational response. Since what was at issue was what God wanted, let God decide. It was a controlled experiment, an empirical test. God would let the people know, in an unambiguous way, who was right. It would establish once and for all the truth. But Moses didn't stop there, as he would have done if truth were the only issue involved. As we saw in the quote above, Moses tried to argue Korach out of his dissent, not by addressing his argument, but by speaking to the resentment that lay behind him. He told him that he'd been given a position of honour. He may not have been a priest, 
but he was at least a Levite, and the Levites had special sacred status not shared by the other tribes. He was telling him to be satisfied with the honour he had and not let his ambition overreach itself. He then turned to Datan and Aviram, the Reubenites. Given the chance, he would have said something different to them since the source of their discontent was different from that of Karach. But they refused to meet with him altogether, another sign that they weren't interested in the truth. They'd rebelled out of a profound sense of slight that the tribe of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, seemed to have been left out altogether from the allocation of honours. At this point, the confrontation became yet more intense. For the one and only time in his life, Moses staked his leadership on the occurrence of a miracle. He said, By this you shall know it was the Lord who sent me to do all these things that they weren't of my own devising. If these men die natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. No sooner had he finished speaking than the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. The rebels went down alive into the grave. Now you can't imagine a more dramatic vindication. God had shown beyond possibility of doubt that Moses was right and the rebels wrong. Yet this did not end the argument. That is what is extraordinary. Far from being apologetic and repentant, the people returned the next morning still complaining, this time not about who should lead them, but about the way Moses had chosen to end the dispute. Listen to what it says. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. You may be right, they implied, and Karach may have been wrong. But is this the way to end an argument? To cause your opponent to be swallowed up alive? This time, God suggested an entirely different way of resolving the dispute. He told Moses to have each of the tribes take a staff and write their name on it and place them in the tent of meeting. On the staff of the tribe of Levi, he should write the name of Aaron. One of the staffs would sprout and that would signal whom God had chosen. The tribes did so and the next morning they returned to find that Aaron's staff had budded, blossomed and produced almonds. That finally ended the argument. What resolved the dispute, in other words, wasn't a show of power, but something altogether different. We can't be sure because the text doesn't spell it out, but the fact that Aaron's rod produced almond blossoms seemed to have had rich symbolism. In the Near East, the almond is the first tree to blossom. It's white flowers signalling the end of the winter and the emergence of new life. In his first prophetic vision, Jeremiah saw a branch of an almond tree and was told by God that this was a sign that he, God, was watching to see that his word was fulfilled. The almond flowers recalled the gold flowers on the menorah, lit daily by Aaron in the sanctuary. The Hebrew word tzitz, used here to mean blossom, recalls the tzitz, the frontlet of pure gold, worn as part of Aaron's headdress, on which were described the, inscribed the words holy to the Lord. So the sprouting almond branch may therefore have been more than a sign. It was a multifaceted symbol of life, light, holiness, and the watchful presence of God.
You could almost say that the almond branch symbolised the priestly will to life as against the rebel's will to power. The priest doesn't rule the people, he blesses them. He is the conduit through which God's life and giving energies flow. He connects the nation to the divine presence. Moses answered Karach in Karach's terms by a show of force. God answered in a quite different way, showing that leadership isn't self-assertion, but self-effacement. What the entire episode shows is that the destructive nature of argument, not for the sake of heaven, that is, argument for the sake of victory. In such a conflict, what is at stake isn't truth but power, and the result is that both sides suffer. If you win, I lose. But if I win, I also lose, because in diminishing you, I diminish myself. Even Moses was brought low, laying himself open to the charge that you have killed the Lord's people. Argument for the sake of power is a lose-lose scenario. The opposite is the case when the argument is for the sake of truth. If I win, I win because I'm right. But if I lose, I also win because being defeated by the truth is the only form of defeat that is also a victory. I learn the truth. In a famous passage, the Talmud explains why Jewish law tended to follow the school of Hillel rather than their opponents, the school of Shammai, because they were kindly and modest, because they studied not only their own rulings, but also those of the school of Shammai, and because they taught the words of the school of Shammai before their own. They taught truth, not victory. That's why they listened to the views of their opponents and taught them before they taught their own traditions. In the eloquent words of contemporary scientist Timothy Ferris, all who genuinely seek to learn, whether atheist or believer, scientist or mystic, are united in having not a faith, but faith itself. Its token is reverence, its habit to respect the eloquence of silence, for God's hand may be a human hand if you reach out in loving kindness, and God's voice your voice, if you but speak the truth. Judaism has sometimes been called a culture of argument. It's the only religious literature known to me, whose key texts, the Hebrew Bible, Midrash, Mishnah, Gemara, Codes of Jewish Law and the Compendia of Biblical Interpretation, are all anthologies of arguments. That's the glory of Judaism. The divine presence is to be found not in this voice against that, but in the totality of the conversation. In an argument for the sake of truth, both sides win, for each is willing to listen to the views of its opponents and is thereby enlarged. An argument is the collaborative pursuit of truth. The participants use reason, logic, shared texts and shared reverence for texts. If they don't use ad hominem arguments, abuse, contempt or disingenuous appeals to emotion, each is willing, if refuted, to say, I was wrong. There is no triumphalism in victory, no anger or anguish in defeat. The story of Karach remains the classic example of how argument can be dishonoured. The schools of Hillel and Shammai remind us there is another way. Argument for the sake of heaven is one of Judaism's noblest ideals. Conflict resolution by honouring both sides and employing humility in the pursuit of truth. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting 
www.rabbisax.org. This year, we also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant and Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org slash cc family edition.